Oh, you beautiful bastard. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Hey, hit that like button to help spread some common sense news coverage, the kind we need on these tubes of you. And let's just jump into it. You know, the first thing that we're gonna talk about today are these absolutely devastating updates regarding the Gabby Petito case. And to bring you up to speed, if you're unfamiliar, she's a 22-year-old woman who went on a cross-country trip in July with her fiance, 23-year-old Brian Laundrie, but she never returned. Though he had Laundrie himself coming back to his home on September 1st without her driving the white van that they used on trips that they shared with their hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers. With Gabby's family 10 days after Brian returned, reporting her missing, saying they hadn't had contact with her since the last week of August when she was apparently in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. After that, you had Brian declining to talk to police or cooperate with investigators at the advice of his lawyer. He was also named a person of interest. And since covering that, obviously the biggest update to this story is that a body matching Gabby's description has been found in Grand Teton. Now with this, right now, authorities still need to confirm officially whether or not the body is in fact her and what the cause of death was and an autopsy is currently scheduled for Tuesday. But with that, you have the FBI releasing a statement extending their condolences to her family, saying that this is an incredibly difficult time for them and our thoughts are with them as they mourn the loss of their daughter. Gabby's father also posting a photo honoring her, saying that she touched the world. Brian Laundrie's family also releasing a statement calling the news heartbreaking, saying that the country was mourning Gabby, but also that is where there's a lot of focus now. Because Brian's whereabouts are currently unknown, with his family reportedly last seeing him on Tuesday, but failing to divulge any information regarding that to authorities until Friday. Or something which has been characterized by a number of people as a family giving Brian a head start. But when speaking to the authorities, saying that they believe that Brian went to Carlton Reserve, which is located outside of Northport, Florida, an extensive search there taking place over the weekend, many people asking why is Brian missing? But you also had a lawyer for Gabby's family releasing a statement saying all of Gabby's family want the world to know that Brian is not missing, he is hiding. And as for updates, on the search at Carlton Reserve, you have authorities saying that they have no plans to conduct a major search in the area today, believing that they've exhausted all avenues on these grounds, though the search in general continues. Regarding the Laundry family, we actually saw huge news this morning when the Tampa FBI tweeted that they are executing a court-authorized search warrant today at the Laundry residence in Northport, Florida, relevant to the Gabrielle Gabby Petito case, with reports saying that the home was declared a crime scene and that Brian's parents were both removed from it and placed in a vehicle outside as authorities searched the house. We've also seen updates regarding that dispute that happened between Gabby and Brian during their trip, right? We talked about it last week. On August 12th, authorities responded to a domestic violence call involving the couple. Body cam footage showed the encounter. Gabby crying, clearly emotional during it. The two had apparently been fighting all morning. Brian had a scratch on his face saying that Gabby hit him with her phone when she was trying to get the keys from him. With police at that time saying that it appeared more like a mental and emotional break than a domestic incident, so no charges were pressed. But now you have Fox News reporting that they obtained the initial 911 call reporting the domestic dispute. And in that, we don't hear something where it's like an emotional break, people arguing. The caller allegedly says that Brian slapped her. So this, of course, adding another aspect to the story also more criticism because people said that the police could have stopped this from happening. And so obviously following these updates, these developments, this new search, we're gonna have to keep our eyes on this to see what else we learn. But also there is another aspect to this story that's been getting more and more attention. And while it's not the core thing here, I, th I think it is worth mentioning. Right, the story, especially over the weekend, became this social media sensation. Tons of people seemingly trying to solve this on places like TikTok, where the hashtag Gabby Petito has been viewed over 500 million times. Find Gabby Petito another 50 million times, and several other tags related to her receiving millions upon millions of views. Among this, you have some seemingly contributing evidence, though obviously each individual one varies in credibility. Right, some obviously crazy off-the-wall bullshit, some people just kind of trying to insert themselves in the story, others actually very helpful, potentially. With many 
reports pointing to this one couple on YouTube that was reviewing footage of their trip to the Grand Teton area and noticed what appears to be Gabby's van from a video that they took on August 27th, with them uploading that footage on Saturday just a day before the body was found. But then, on the other side of this, we're seeing a massive debate happen. Right? You have people digging for any clues they could find, acting as internet detectives, people posting constant theories and updates, and while you have some saying that this is actually a good thing, right, it's getting more eyes to the story, you have some arguing things like it's just making extra noise, also arguing that a border is on insensitive, with Abby Richards who researches misinformation and disinformation on TikTok telling the Washington Post, there's a lot of people who are capitalizing off of and profiting off of creating content that's designed to dissect the last days that we know of this girl. But they're also calling it crime porn under the guise of awareness. With Mashable also putting out a piece saying that her disappearance shouldn't be an internet true crime thriller. And the longer you look at this aspect of the story, the debate that's happening, there, there's a million arguments happening. Or with some arguing that by going after these people, it's kind of the, the villainization of just everyday people. Or with some people saying, why is it wrong when Joe Blow does it, but when Nancy Grace makes a career out of it, she's kind of awarded. So where I want to end this story is with two questions. The first, of course, being what are your thoughts regarding the case and the news regarding Gabby Petito and specifically the, the Laundry family? And two, what are your thoughts regarding the internet aspect of this story, the, the coverage that's happening, the debate that's happening? I, I'd really love to know. Then, pivoting to other news from the day, there, there was a story that when I initially saw the title, I was like, oh, this is going to be a COVID-19 story. But reportedly in Austin, Texas, there's a school board meeting. You have Kara Q. Bell coming up to the mic. Right in her name or that face, it might seem familiar to you because as the Daily Dot noted, she's previously gone viral as an anti-masker conspiracy theorist and for assaulting a department store employee. But actually, in the video of this school board meeting, Kara does a hard pivot, kind of mentioning a mask mandate at the beginning and then boom, quoting a book. All right, well, I'm just thankful that y'all don't have the ability to um, make a mask mandate. And tonight I was gonna talk about the need for a second high school, but I was sidetracked by, for the boys, or the idea of, or the idea of, idea of, a Mexican is a Mexican is a Mexican. Take her out back, we boys figured, then hand on the Put it in her coin box, put it in her cornhole, grab a hold of that braid, rub that calico. You can find that on page 39 of the book called Out of Darkness, which you can find at Hudson Bend Middle School and Bee Cave Middle School. Then going on to say that she was unfamiliar with some of the terminology with kind of the, the same energy as a boyfriend or husband saying, on, only fans? Is that, am I pronouncing it right? All right, not gonna lie, I had to Google cornhole because I have the game in the back of my yard. But according to Wikipedia, Cornhole is a sexualist slang vulgarism for anus. The term came into the use in the 1910s of the United States as verb form to cornhole, which came into usage in the 1930s, means to have anal sex. The car are then getting very heated on the topic. I do not want my children to learn about anal sex in middle school. I have never had anal sex. Thank I don't you. want to have anal sex. I don't want my kids Hard having anal stone. sex. I want you to start focusing on education and not public health. So one where I'll start here is I do find it a little bit odd that Kara, Kara, however you pronounce your name, you, you felt it necessary to clarify that you do not engage in anal sex. No one was asking, and I don't think that it changes the, the core or validity of your argument. Two, I do think that it is a stupid argument to say that a school board or schools can't deal with more than one issue at a time. But also, three, separating all the unexpected anal talk, uh, this is really the continuation of a debate that we've seen in schools before. Right? What is and is not appropriate in a school. And actually, regarding that in this 
specific situation, the school district ended up removing the book, with a spokesperson for the district saying the contents are currently under review, adding a district possesses significant discretion to determine the content of its school libraries, though noting a district must, however, exercise its discretion in a manner consistent with the First Amendment. A district shall not remove materials from a library for the purpose of denying students access to ideas which the district disagrees, but also saying a district may remove materials because they are pervasively vulgar or based solely upon the educational suitability of the books in question. Right, and from there, in this debate, yeah, you have people agreeing, saying it's unnecessarily vulgar, we don't need that in front of middle schoolers. Although on the other side, you have people saying, you know, this is just a free speech issue, you also have to take into account context. They're saying people talking in an unsavory manner, doing bad things, right, the, the book's not like necessarily promoting that. And regarding these issues, you have people like Jonathan Friedman, the director of the Free Expression and Education at PEN America, saying, I think to pretend books that deal explicitly with sex or sexual assault are in some way a threat to young people are doing them a disservice. Saying books like this can teach a diversity of viewpoints, expose young people to the realities of the world and the people in it. I will say, personally, I'm unfamiliar with the book, doing a little bit of research, it looks like it's geared towards 9th to 12th grade. So the questions I want to pass off to you with this story is, one, I mean, what are your thoughts regarding this book? Is this the kind of thing that you would want pulled? Or no, you think you're very much against that? And two, what are your opinions on anal? I'm kidding. Though, oddly, this does connect because we're probably going to see something with Kara in the future regarding this. We're now getting the news that a COVID vaccine for kids appears to be just around the corner. While the writing has kind of been there on the walls for this, this morning, Pfizer announced that its joint COVID vaccine with BioNTech is safe and effective in kids ages 5 to 11. Now, reportedly, the only difference between this version of the vaccine and the one that Pfizer currently has approved for people 12 and up is that the dose is smaller, with it being a third of the amount that's being given to adults and teens. But even with this, Pfizer says that the antibody response that they've seen in kids has been comparable to the response that we've seen in older patients. And so as far as what happens next, Pfizer says that it expects to finish submitting data to the FDA by the end of the month. From there, that data, which still needs to be peer-reviewed and published, will then be double-checked by the FDA to ensure that the vaccine not only elicits a strong immune response in kids, but also that there are no serious side effects. And notably, that process could take weeks or even all of October. But there is now somewhat of an expectation that approval could potentially come around Halloween. Right, and as you would expect with this news, of course, there are going to be some people that are like, not my child, never in a million years. Others saying, please, faster, now. Regarding that latter group, you have experts like Dr. Fauci saying, yes, this is predictable. We have been expecting this, but urging people to let research run its course. Right, because with cases recently skyrocketing among children, one issue that we've seen is parents urging pediatricians to just go ahead and give their kids the shot. But regarding that, I mean, you have Pfizer Senior Vice President of Vaccine Clinical Research and Development saying, no one should really be freelancing. They should wait for the appropriate approval and recommendations to decide how best to manage their own children's circumstances. You know, with this story, I was very interested to know where do people land on this issue? Like a lot of people may have an opinion of vaccine for me or not, but what about the kids? So understand, I'm not trying to say this is like reflective of the United States as we know it. Like YouTube community posts get in front of, yes, your audience, and then also just random aspects of the YouTube audience in general. But among the 63,000 people that took part in this poll, 77% of people that said that they were parents said that they would vaccinate their children. As far as those who said that they are not parents, but they hope that parents would get their kids vaccinated, you had over 93%. But the number of the top comments being somewhat similar to this one, reading as an educator who's face-to-face -face with over 400 unvaccinated elementary students each week in a state where mass mandates are banned, I say we let them have that layer of protection. Once again, I do want to add that these numbers that we're seeing, it's a reflection of you beautiful bastards as well as a part of greater YouTube. Right, I wouldn't be sending these numbers to the Associated Press and say, print this now, this is all the American people. But yeah, with that said, especially if you didn't partake in the poll itself, what are your thoughts here? But from that, I want to take a quick second to thank the sponsor of today's show, NordVPN.com slash Phil. You know, if you're a longtime viewer, you know that I've spent the last few years telling you about NordVPN and the many reasons why you should use it. And here's another. Nord gives you worldwide access, which gives me and my team the ability to bring you news from hundreds of streaming websites from across the world. And hey, would it be nice to look up products or services that we want without the bombardment of ads that come with it afterwards? I mean, you look up one specific thing and bam, curated ads on every site you visit for the foreseeable future. And NordVPN allows you to bypass this digital footprint and enables you to go on with your life without being targeted and overall allows for more online anonymity. 
exciting. And there you go, two more reasons to the already long list of reasons to make NordVPN a part of your online security plan. So head on over to nordvpn.com slash right now to get a huge discount on a two-year plan. Even get a bonus gift of four additional months free when you sign up today. And it's risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Then we should definitely talk about the massive news that a Texas doctor reportedly performs an abortion in violation of the state's new restrictive law that bans the procedure after six weeks, which is before most people know that they're pregnant. And we've talked in depth about this law. It's one of the most restrictive in the country. It doesn't have exceptions for rape or incest. It also allows civilians to sue anyone who helps someone receive an abortion after six weeks. But one of the key things here is this doctor wasn't like outed through a tip line or someone exposed him. The Texas doctor actually revealed this in an op-ed that was published in the Washington Post over the weekend. And in this op-ed, Dr. Alan Braid, who has been practicing as an OBGYN in Texas for 45 years, said that just days after the law took effect, he gave an abortion to a woman who was still in her first trimester, but already beyond the state's new limit. And writing, I acted because I had a duty of care to this patient, as I do for all patients, and because she has a fundamental right to receive this care. And also adding, I fully understand that there could be legal consequences, but I wanted to make sure that Texas didn't get away with its bid to prevent this blatantly unconstitutional law from being tested. Right, with him going on to say that he understands he's taking a personal risk, but concluding, I have daughters, granddaughters, and nieces. I believe abortion is an essential part of healthcare. I've spent the past 50 years treating and helping patients. I can't just sit back and watch us return to 1972. And this whole story is notable for a few reasons. I mean, starting with under the law, any citizen can now sue Braid, and if they do, it could be the first test case under the law. But also, despite all their threats to enforce the law, it's unclear if anti-abortion groups will follow through here. With Texas Right to Life, which set up a website to report people suspected of violating the ban, saying in a statement that they're looking into Braid's claims, but adding, it definitely seems like a legal stunt, and we are looking into whether it is more than that. But also, even if abortion opponents hold off on Braid's case, there's another challenge to the Texas law that could potentially hold it up. Right, shortly after the law took effect, we had the Department of Justice filing a lawsuit attempting to stop it. Just last week, the agency filed an emergency motion asking a federal judge in the state to temporarily block the ban while that legal battle plays out, with a hearing for that motion set for October 1st. So that is the next thing that we're gonna be watching for, because regardless of what side the federal judge rules for, the other side is basically 100% insured to sue, and this fight could take the question to the Supreme Court in a matter of months. And then we should definitely talk about the situation happening at the U.S.-Mexico border right now. Right, so some quick background here. Large numbers of Haitians have been coming to the U.S. from South America for years, but those numbers have massively increased in recent months as the humanitarian situation in the country continues to deteriorate, with the situation escalating dramatically over the last week amid a massive surge in migration that has overwhelmed Border Patrol. That prompting officials to hold the migrants, most of whom were from Haiti in a temporary staging area under a bridge in Del Rio, Texas, where they set up a makeshift camp. According to reports, it's unclear how the camp amassed so many people so quickly, with it reportedly going from a few hundred last week to more than 14,000 this weekend, with the camp quickly garnering a ton of attention as pictures and videos went viral, showing thousands living in cramped, dirty conditions, many sleeping on the ground with little or no access to food, water, or bathrooms in triple-digit heat. That, unsurprisingly, drawing a ton of backlash against the Biden administration's handling of the border crisis, including many Republicans who slammed the president for not deporting more people. And so on Friday, what we saw was administration officials announcing that they would begin deporting the Haitians gathered at the camp. And yesterday, we saw the first group of 300 migrants sent back to Haiti on three planes, and what the AP described as the beginning of what could be one of America's swiftest large-scale expulsions of migrants or refugees in decades. With the head of Haiti's National Migration Office saying that authorities in the country expect that about 14,000 Haitians will be expelled from the U.S. in the next three weeks. Notably adding, the Haitian state is not really able to receive these deportees. But also, it's not just deportations. The administration also began to crack down on border crossing. U.S. Customs and Border Protection now closing off vehicle and foot traffic at the border between Del Rio and Mexico. We've also seen very troubling reports of Border Patrol agents on horseback cracking whips at people crossing the Rio Grande River, yelling at them to go back to Mexico. And so with this whole situation, you now have the Biden administration facing pressure from all sides. Right, yes, you have a ton of people calling for more deportations, but also you have people in Haiti and the U.S. calling for the suspension of deportations. With many of that latter group noting that Biden had pledged to take a more humanitarian approach to immigration than Trump, but these 
these deportations are similar to something that we'd see under the previous administration. With one of the Haitians who was deported yesterday telling reporters, if Biden continues with these deportations, he's no better than Trump. I'm afraid for my safety here. I don't even know this country anymore. Other critics also saying that the deportation of Haitians was especially contradictory, noting that as recently as May, the Biden administration granted temporary protected status to tens of thousands of undocumented Haitians. With officials then citing serious security concerns, social unrest, an increase in human rights abuses, crippling poverty, and the lack of basic resources in the country. And actually, since then, things have only gotten worse in Haiti. Haiti is still suffering unrest from the unresolved assassination of its president back in July. Also, there was an earthquake that killed 2,200 people and destroyed tens of thousands of homes and other buildings, leaving thousands homeless. The government was already on the verge of collapse there as they had internal power struggles continuing to play out, with the situation escalating even more last week after the country's top prosecutor said that there was evidence linking the sitting prime minister to the assassination. But now with all of that said, the, the question I want to pass off to you is what are your thoughts with what's happening at the border? Or do you see these deportations from the Biden administration as yes, that, that's what you want to see or no, it's a failure of the administration? Really, any and all thoughts you have here, your, your reasoning, I'd love to hear from you. Then in absolutely shocking news, it turns out you can't trust the Taliban. Who could have guessed except everybody? And specifically what I'm mentioning is that one month ago, the Taliban vowed to respect women's rights, including their ability to attend school and work. Right? Wow, this is the Taliban 2.0. They have members that use the hashtag I'm with her and they wear pussy hats. And then shocker, on Friday you had the Taliban shutting down the Ministry of Women's Affairs and adding a ministry for the propagation of virtue and the prevention of vice. Also just today after the Ministry of Women's Affairs was shut down, Taliban ministers ordered male teachers and students back to secondary school, failing to mention female educators or students at all, leading them to stay at home over fears of reprisal. Then, as of this morning, you're the acting mayor of Kabul saying that nearly every municipal city job held by women would be refilled by men, with only female restroom attendants and women who had very specific technical skills being allowed to stay on. Although notably, with that last group, that's likely just until men can be educated and trained to take over. Now, notably, to be clear, many of the changes that are occurring that force women from the workplace aren't part of a publicly stated Taliban policy, but rather individual ministers. And the Taliban still officially claiming that women will be allowed to return to work and school once properly proper segregation can be implemented. But once again, that involves trusting the fucking Taliban uh, and two, ignoring what we're seeing with our eyes and hearing with our ears. But yeah, ultimately that is where this story and today's show ends. Let me know what you're thinking in those comments down below for this or any other story that stood out to you. Of course, remember, support the show with just a simple little like, it's free. And with that, I'll say as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.